Um, would you mind open your Bible to the book of James? Um, we've been in James a couple weeks now. I think this is our third week in James, fourth week in James. Joel? Week four. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful things about being in the book of James together as a church. In James, you really see an intimacy with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' ministry. James, as the brother of Jesus, knows carefully the, the paths and the, the, the ways that Jesus walked in. He knows not just the things that are written down, but especially the things that are not. And we begin to see some of those things in the ways that James talks about living his life in light of what he saw in Jesus. Another wonderful thing about the book of James is that it calls us to a maturity, an enduring faith. Uh, a reflective faith, a faith that reflects who Jesus is and the things that Jesus has done for us, and in a maturing faith, one that, one that sits stable and solid. And at a church that's five years old and, and at many of the life stages that many of us are, I, I know that all of us are seeking to kind of root ourselves on a foundation that stands. And James really holds out a mature, stable faith worthy of us resting on. Another thing that's really beautiful about the book of James is that it's, it's a New Testament version of wisdom literature. For those of you who were here in the year and a half we spent outside, we, we preached through the book of Proverbs together, and we began to see that in Proverbs there's this wisdom that the world promotes that leads to death, and a wisdom that the Lord Jesus and that the Lord God kind of holds out for us, and if we follow that wisdom, it leads to life. And James, consistently throughout his letter, is going to lay those two roads open for us, available for us to walk on because of what Jesus has done. And I think my favorite part about James, the most important part for me, is that what we can find from James is that obedience to Jesus is not necessarily something that will suck the life out of us, but will fill us with his life. That obedience to Jesus is fulfilling, it is beautiful, it is fitting, and that Jesus is both our Savior and our Lord. And I really love that about the book of James, and it's been a mercy to me. So we're going to open to chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, so feel free to follow along either in your worship guide or in your Bibles. Listen closely, for this is the word of the Lord. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are our Father and Shepherd. You have shown kindness on the lowly and humble, and you see clearly those who are in need. And as we open your word tonight, we ask that you would show mercy on us as we are in need. Would you open our eyes to see the ways to obey your law in such a way that leads to fruitfulness, liberty, and life? And we ask as you open these words for us, we would receive a hope and a nourishment from our souls, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Do all these things among us now. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. As I just mentioned, James is really, in a lot of ways, about wisdom. It's about a wisdom from above. And often this wisdom from above looks different. It looks different than the wisdom on earth, the wisdom that surrounds us day by day. Just last week in the sermon, Joel was speaking on an analogy that James uses in chapter 1, that the Word of God really functions like a mirror to us, that when we try to stare into the Word of God, what we will often see is a reflection of ourselves, and that we should pay close attention to that reflection, because if we don't, it's easy to forget. We might forget what it shows us about who we are. So we come to the Word of God and hope tonight to see wisdom. Now, this is not my first sermon, but I haven't preached all that many. But one thing that sometimes happens when you're asked to preach a sermon is you're given a text from the scripture, and you go and you sit down and you read it, and you think, what does this mean exactly? I now have to explain that to everyone, and I'm not sure. James never, ever gives us that opportunity. When, when James has the opportunity to say something, he says it briefly and clearly. A, a seminary professor of mine named Paul House would think a lot of the way that James presents his ideas. He doesn't waste words, and he's very clear on what he wants you to take away. This passage is really no different. There's not a lot of confusing metaphors or illustrations for me to comp- explain, but we will look carefully at the text. But what James wants to encourage us with What James wants us to see is that if we are people of mercy, if we are people that know this Lord Jesus Christ that he has begun his letter with, then there's something about us that needs to change. There's a change that has to happen. So we'll look carefully at the change. The next thing he says is this change really has a motivation. There's a reason these things need to change. And he shows us really clearly what that reason is. And finally, he's going to talk about this passage at the end where we understand that we are people of a law of liberty. And this law of liberty liberty will set us free, and we will be people of mercy. So as we walk through our sermon tonight, that's what we're going to talk about, a change that needs to happen, the reason why we have to change, and what it means, what it looks like to be people of mercy. So let's start with what James says needs to change. And to understand... This, you kind of have to understand a little bit of the background about James's time and location. Um, in James's world, uh, you might realize that it's not as different as we might think ours is. But in James's world, there was a group of wealthy on one end of the socioeconomic scale, and off, actually, they were really pretty few in number. 
It was a a society consisting of of very few wealthy individuals surrounded by lots of folks that were just putting the pieces together. Also, and this is a way that it was different, it was very difficult at the time to acquire any wealth without being willing to make some unsavory choices. Often, the wealthy at that time were, were, were renowned for taking advantage of the poor. That's what he mentions when he says, are they not the ones dragging you into court? Often the wealthy had come by that wealth in ways that the community considered unfavorable. So while the wealthy were generally not trust or beloved, as I'll explain in a second, they actually tended to be the source of everyone's income and welfare. The community depended on them, kind of regardless of the way that, that, um, the way that they, they, they were thought of. On the other hand of the scale, so you have the, the very wealthy, you had, you had a really destitute kind of poor. Individuals who could not provide for themselves at all. There were no government structures set aside to help these individuals. They were really pretty dependent on the community around them to to meet their their needs. These are the shabby dressers that James is referring to in this text. They were often sick, dirty, foreigners, at times criminals. In general, no one would really want anything to do with them. And in fact, to associate with them was often quite costly to your resources, to your reputation, to your time, to your family. It really gained you nothing at all. In the end, there's also this final middle group of individuals, the the kind of center of the bell curve. Now, these people would not really be called what we think of as middle class. Uh, it's amazing how 90% of Americans think they're middle class, but, but these people did not have disposable income. They were definitely poor. They didn't always know exactly how they were going to get the things they needed to make it through the next year. But on the other hand, they weren't always scrounging around for their basic needs. They had some sort of structure in which they could count on things to be met. They just got by. Do you know how? It was a system, really, that can be called patronage. It kept this lower middle class alive. In patronage, some of these individuals might make a relationship with a very wealthy man, an individual landholder that might take a sponsorship to their trade or their task, their farm or their carpentry skills. He would have a a goal or an objective or or a city that he was trying to build, and, and, and underneath his wings and his income, people would find their welfare. They made the towns and the cities tick. Often the microeconomy would then just be people trading around the money that that one wealthy individual had passed down through each of their trades. So if you're in a church in James's day and that man walks in, you know that in his pocket lies the opportunity for fruitfulness and ministry and mission work that you've never seen before. Buildings, opportunities, people who can be fed and taken care of, new opportunities to care for the poor. This individual represented the hope of fruitfulness, even as you may not care for them as an individual. Let's consider ourselves by comparison. We have increasing socioeconomic disparity in the United States Increasing division between impoverished communities and wealthy ones. I used to work uh, in my winter breaks at Beeson Divinity School at Brooks Brothers. And uh, there are definitely times at Brooks Brothers where where you can see clearly uh, a dividing line between types of individuals. And there was a man named Mr. Matthews. And Mr. Matthews would come in on New Year's Eve 
every single year. And he always saw the guy named Anderson. And Anderson had built this relationship over decades of working at Brooks Brothers. And Mr. Matthews was there to spend like, I I, I kid you not, like $4,000 on shirts that moment. Like he walked in, he would just go pick out like 34 shirts and he would lay them on the table and Anderson would look at you so nasty if you started talking to Mr. Matthews. Because we worked on a little bit of commission. And Mr. Matthews was his ticket. So when Mr. Matthews was coming every New Year's Eve, Anderson would kind of lay out a plan for the store. I had never seen him arrange the tables by the door. He never did that. I had never seen him kind of greet people as they came in. He'd always wear his nicest shirt. Anderson knew that Mr. Matthews was kind of the way to where he wanted to go. See, I think it's really easy to read this text that James is laying out for us and think, well, I'm not a very partial person. I don't usually think about someone's income when I'm deciding whether I want to be friendly to them or nice to them. But we, according to James, we cannot simply operate according to the world's values or wisdom. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to recognize that we value people because of the profitability they can bring to us. We see the ways that they bring us closer to the things that we want. They meant... Uh, we are meant to have our needs met in the provision of God, and yet we see individuals as a road by which we might meet our needs. Even in a beautiful, wonderful church like Grace Fellowship, sometimes there are people who walk in, and, and you may think our church needs to be more diverse, and you might think, wow, that's an opportunity for us to grow in diversity. Or you might think our church needs to be more mature, and you might see an individual that you think can bring about that level of maturity in our church, and these are good desires. Maybe you want us to be more full of children or more able to afford better sound displays and better lighting for our sanctuary or, or maybe a kid's area with a little bit more room. These are all good desires. And there's no doubt that certain types of individuals or people that live in our community might give us access to those things. And James is saying to us, this needs to change. You have everything you need in me, and I have taken it upon myself to care for the lowly. So when you look at people as potential resources or people who have what you want and what you need, and you value those people over everyone else, be careful. He says, be careful. So this is the change. I think my first response to that is, James, why? I'm being practical. I'm not forgetting the impoverished. I'm not unaware of the individuals around me that that might cost me relational time or or resources, but I, I really do. I'm trying to pay attention and steward the resources that you've brought to your church well. I just want that person to have a great experience when they're at Grace Fellowship. Why? Well, James really wants to lay it out in two ways. He says the, the, the motivation behind this change, the reason behind this change is two different things. One, it doesn't reflect God. And two, it doesn't reflect what has happened to you. We can't be like that, James says, because it doesn't reflect who our God is and it doesn't reflect what has happened to you. See, James is making the argument that favoritism is wrong because God doesn't do it. And it's really that simple for him. We can't be people of favoritism because we worship a God that is not of favoritism. In real time and in real space throughout the scriptures, we see this God 
do all sorts of wonderful things. What does he do? He moves towards brokenness, right? What does he do? He fills the depths of needy people. He feeds the hungry. He fights for the defenseless and the forgotten. See, a God who comes after, who identifies with, who vindicates the poor, needs a group of individuals who represent his name in the world that will do those things first. It doesn't reflect who our God is. And where does James get this picture of who God is? Well, James watched. James watched as wisdom himself made flesh in Jesus Christ did these things. Rejected dinners with the wealthy. Had dinner with social misfits. The sick. The forgotten. The prostitutes. The individuals who, when you associated with them, you lost reputation and attention. He watched as the Son of God had nowhere to lay his head, even in the midst of great wealth among the religious ruling class. James heard a parable that Jesus told about a banquet feast where all the rich turned down his invitations, but the poor jumped at the chance to eat at his table, and he rejoiced. This is the God that James saw, heard, and knew. How can his people reflect something different? If we celebrate people we think benefit us, lay down at their feet, or ignore or forget about those who are costly, I think the question really arises, whose economy, whose God, whose name are we really reflecting? The Lord's? Not the one of the Bible. And I think that's a challenge. Second thing that James wants to challenge us with is this change has to happen because it doesn't reflect what happened to you. See, we are people governed by the law of love and liberty, as James said. We are people of mercy who triumphs over judgment. When James talks about law-keeping or obedience, he never really is actually talking about it as an alternative to grace, as an alternative to being forgiven uh, in Jesus, as an alternative to receiving salvation and becoming associated with him because of his work on the cross. He's describing it as a, a fruit People are transformed by what they experience in the mercy of God. We love our neighbor, especially our needy neighbor. Why? Because we are the needy neighbor that is the recipient of Jesus Christ, the Lord's love. Favoritism doesn't fit the law of love because we were integrated into the body of Christ, not because of what we brought to the table, but because of the great blessing he could bestow on us at his table. So God's people have to be a table that is open for people to be blessed and receive what they need. The abundance is already there. We're not people who see individuals who can meet our needs. We meet the individuals' needs who come to us because we have full abundance in Jesus Christ. So what might it really look like for the people James is addressing, by the way, which could be and is us, to change this way? Would it demand less comfortable relationships? Probably. Would it demand a a lower flexible budget? (laughs) Almost certainly. Would it bring a less impressive association? Probably. Would less people know maybe all the things that we were about? Yeah, that's possible. And these things seem like a hard sell. But James insists, and James is right, Because if we are people of our God, then we reflect who he is 
and we reflect what he has done. So here's the way we could become people of mercy, as James lays it out. We want to be people of mercy. We have a change. We understand why it's important. So, so what is the way that James is really going to lay out for us to get there? And I'm going to say that there are really kind of two pieces to this as well. There's a commitment, a very practical way, and then there's a grace, a thing that we need, a thing that is given to us. So let's talk about a commitment. There's a very practical way to approach these things. And James doesn't hold back. Stop doing it. Please. Be intentional not to size up people when they walk through our doors of our church or the doors of your home or the doors of your workplace or your neighbors based on what they can offer to us. Take bread to your neighbor who doesn't have a nice ladder and your neighbor who does have a nice ladder. All right? Don't think about the things that this individual offers you to get that you really want. We must be people who bring people to the nice seats to see the nice thing that we have found. There are times when this may even look like sheer force of will and effort, and those things are essential. We're not going to luck our way into being people of mercy. And that's essential, but it's not sufficient. We need to have this commitment, but we also need a grace. A grace, a maturity. If there's one of the things that I've found in my last few years of living this life on this earth, is that you neither accidentally mature or force your way to it. Maturity is something that is given to you, that grows in you, that responds to the circumstances around you, where Jesus Christ has consistently met you in times of want and in need and caused something beautiful to flower. I can't just tell you, go be mature. It doesn't work that way. But I do know the ways that Jesus builds maturity in his people. Paul will call it in Ephesians 4, this kind of growing up into Christ in all things. In Romans 12, he'll say, we must be transformed by the renewal of our minds, not conformed to the ways of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5, he would say that we must act as if the Lord Jesus himself were making his appeal through us. That as we come into this body of believers where we receive the grace of Jesus, we are being transformed from one degree of glory the next. So where do we get this grace? Well, we adore our Lord Jesus Christ. We adore him. We listen to stories like Smith's has, and we feel our heart beat because we know that Lord too. One of my favorite stories is in John chapter 9, and we won't go into a ton of detail, but Jesus is walking his way to do the thing that we have all longed for, to bring all of creation to its intended purpose, to die and bring all things to life. And John chapter 9 begins with the words, as he passed by. He's on the road to the cross, the road to Jerusalem, and as he passes by, he sees an individual born blind. Do you know what it means to be seen? If we adore a Jesus that sees us when we were forgotten and unseeable, we will become the kind of people who see the forgotten and the unseeable. We adore our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a grace. That's one of the ways we'll grow into maturity. Second, we treasure the gospel. People of mercy have received mercy, and those who have received mercy will show mercy. What has happened to us transforms us and shapes us. Many of the things I do best are because my father 
and this, by this I mean Doug Colburn, did them best for me. They shaped me. They made me know what I wanted to be about. They helped grow me into the kind of person who loved people who were far off, who were deep in need, who were stable in times of crisis, who fought for the people who no one else would fight for. We are shaped by the things that someone has done for us. So we treasure the gospel. Christ died for us, showed us forgiveness of sins, gave us great blessing and mercy, gave us purpose in a life without it. We treasure that good news of the gospel. And third, we come to receive everything we need from him. We drink and eat at no price. We invite people to the good seats, the good seats to see what we have found, what will rest on this table before us, what is available for us in his body and blood in home groups as well as we meet to discuss his word, his very body made available to us in the church. As we approach his word where the very fullness of everything we need for maturity dwells, we receive everything we need for this life from Jesus Christ himself. What a great mercy it is that everything he asks of us, he provides. And it's really that good news that's going to bring us to the table together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this is all our hope, that you have drawn near to those in need, that you have no favoritism, that you don't evaluate us as someone who has something you need and therefore is worthy of your attention or time, but that you gave of yourself fully on the cross, fully in resurrection, fully in newness of life, that you have breathed your spirit into your people and that you have given us blessing and bounty beyond our expectation in our years. We ask, Lord, as we come to this table that you would allow us to receive that grace from you. Uh, be glorified in our worship. Amen.